Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by state historian emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. We've just launched our Facebook and Instagram pages. Please follow us on social media to get the scoop on new episodes, behind-the-scenes photos, and information about upcoming programs. Wall-to-wall posters, sticky floors, a small stage, and the stale beer smell give Toads its enduring character as a live music shrine. Authenticity can't be faked. Opened as a restaurant in 1975, Toads has welcomed hundreds of musical acts from the pioneers of the blues like B.B. King to today's megastars Drake and Cardi B. But what does it take to run a nightclub and to have it be successful for almost half a century? Today my guest is Randall Beach, co-author with Toads Place owner Brian Phelps of the new book, The Legendary Toads Place, Stories from New Haven's Famed Musical Venue, published in 2021 by Globe Pequot Press. Beach was the music critic for the New Haven Register from 1978 to 1984, covering many shows at Toad's Place. He later wrote about rock music for the New Haven Advocate, the Hartford Current, and Billboard Magazine. He currently writes a column for Connecticut Magazine. Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you for having me on. How did this book come about? I got a call from Brian Phelps, who I who I knew from Toad's Place because I'd covered rock music for the New Haven Register. Uh, it must have been, yeah, I think it was the fall of 2020. And he said, uh, do you have any way to get photos from the New Haven Register of um, shows at Toad's Place? And I explained that that would be difficult because there'd been so many changes in ownership that they weren't good stewards of the uh, archive. And so I said I could make a call, but I didn't, I wasn't hopeful or promising, but I did say to him, Brian, what is this book you're talking about? And he said, well, yeah, I'm going to, I'm writing a book about a whole history of Toad's Place. Brian, why don't you have me do this with you? I was at those shows. I held on to the clippings. I'm still here. I'm, I can, I can do this with you. We could work this out. I think it would be good. And uh, he said, oh yeah, that's not a bad idea. So he uh, had me to lunch at uh, Maury's, the legendary Yale-affiliated restaurant next to Toad's. We, we had a good chat, we got along, we had a good working relationship from the beginning, we like each other, and um, off we went. He handed me 80 pages printed out of his journal of all those years. And I looked at it and said, well, here's the foundation right here. All I have to do is more interviews with him, follow it up, tell me more stories, call some other people who were involved with it. And um, we got it right there. A couple months later, so it's January, 2021, just before the pandemic, we went to Globe Pequot Press in Guilford, pitched the story to them. Brian started telling his stories. He's a great storyteller. They could see I had the credentials as a writer. And, um, they accepted uh, our, our proposal and said, yeah, we'll publish this. One of the things I really like about the book is how well illustrated it is. Plus, I know that uh, the book has a number of interviews that you conducted where you were able to put that firsthand material together. And then you actually have playlists for some of those shows. Did Brian have playlists available? 
a lot of this came from, uh, you can go online and uh, it's amazing. The internet has playlists for a lot of these uh, shows. And I also uh, had my own files, obviously Brian to some extent, Roger Catlin, who was writing for the Hartford Current, I quoted from some of his stories where he got pretty in depth on what the songs were. So I just put it all together to give people a sense of what, what were the highlights of those shows. And again, fortunately, since a pack rat, I had kept my clippings in a, in a big box. Uh, so even if something was not available online because it went back to the late 70s, early 80s, um, I could re reassemble what that show entailed. How did Toad's Place start? Opened just two years after the famed CBGB's Club in New York City, the building at 300 York Street, close to the Yale campus, had housed a popular restaurant called Hungry Charlie's. In 1974, Michael Spernoodle, formerly a student at the Culinary Institute of America, rented the building for a French and Italian restaurant. Named Toad's Place, the first menu had a tiny toad on it. In 1976, Bernoodle turned the restaurant into a live music venue. Bernoodle was a charming and charismatic guy, the perfect person to own a nightclub. Willie Dixon, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, and Coco Taylor were some of the first performers. In 1976, Brian Phelps joined as manager and eventually co-owner. Phelps became the owner in 1995. Sadly, Bernoodle battled drug and alcohol dependency before dying in 2011. So there are so many great stories about bands that are in the book, but one of the most famous stories is about a concert that you actually attended, uh, which was that the Rolling Stones played Toad's Place in 1989. How did that happen? Well, the Stones um, were rehearsing uh, upstate Northwest Hills of Connecticut. Um, they were rehearsing, uh, they wanted to be uh, a way where they could just get reacquainted. They hadn't toured in eight years. And so they gotten their, their chops back together and new material for the Steel Wheels tour. And they put out the Steel Wheels album. And um, at one point, Mick Jagger said, uh, I, I want us to play live in front of a small audience and just see, um, see how they respond to us now after eight years. And uh, we need to do a live show in that kind of intimate setting. They got in touch with um, Jimmy Coplick, the Connecticut promoter, and, and they said, well, where should we go? And Jimmy said, there's only one place, and that's Toad's. You've got to do it at Toad's. They know how to do this, and um, you'll be well taken care of. So they um, put the wheels in motion with uh, Brian and, and, and Mike Sperndle. They uh, just said, well, we want to come in, and we want to do this show, but we're not going to do it if people know about it ahead of time, because it'll be a a big mess and we'll be overrun with people. We want to just have about 500 people there and just surprise people and do this show. So don't let it out that we're going to play at Toad's Place or, or if we come down York Street and see a gigantic mess out in the street, we're just going to keep on going. It's not going to be a show. So they had to keep this very, very quiet. So I know they had a, like kind of a cover story about what that evening's entertainment was going to be. What was that? Yes, um, Jimmy Coplick said, well, it's my birthday that week and I can tell people I know and people in the industry, hey, come on down to this place. We'll, we'll, we'll do some dancing and uh, we'll put a band on and uh, come help me celebrate my birthday. Some of the people in the know in the industry did know it was, it was, it was gonna be the Stones, but they kept a lid on it. 
And uh, the band listed was Sons of Bob, who were these uh, five local musicians, good musicians, but they certainly were just not nationally known. And they came out of North Brantford area. And um, they had played at Toads. Mike Sperndle liked them. And Mike called them up and said, uh, what are you guys doing uh, Saturday night? And they said, well, well we, we have a gig we're playing. Well, I got something for you and you, you really ought to do this one. And they said, well, oh, Brian, we got this other gig. And then, and uh, he said, no, you really ought to do this, and you, you better tell me in five minutes or I'm going to give it to somebody else. So these sons of Bob sort of said, well, it's, it's Mike Sperndle, it's Toads, it's something for Jimmy Coppock. I guess we should do it. We'll cancel the other show. And they called him back and said, okay, we'll do it. Still, they didn't know what was going on, that they'd be hoping for the Rolling Stones. They found out that night, well, that afternoon when they got there, the day of. Now, how did you find out about it? Well, I was living in New Haven, and um, fortunately, answering machines were then in existence. No cell phones, but we had an answering machine in our home. And we'd been, my wife and I had been out, and it turned out, just by happenstance, it was her birthday, and she was saying, oh, I, I, just, I just feel like going out dancing, and where could we do that tonight? And I looked through the New Haven Advocate. I couldn't find anything that said any good. We were just going to think, gee, this dead town, nothing going on. And then I, I saw, I had a message on my answering machine, so I punched the message button and it said, uh, you didn't hear it from me, but uh, there's a real good chance the Rolling Stones are playing a Toads tonight. Uh, you didn't, don't, don't say who this cause will call to you, just call me Deep Throat. And my wife and I just stared at each other and said, well, I guess we better click down there and see if there's anything to this. I later found out, I mean, I knew it was uh, Rick Allison, my good friend from, from PLR, the DJ, had given me the, the tip of my life. <laughs> if I hadn't gotten that tip, I would have been so angry to be in New Haven and missed it. But we got down there in time, and I showed up, we wrote, showed up the door, I said to the bouncer, come on, who's playing here tonight? He said, Sons of Bob. I said, Sons of Bob, who's that? He said, you coming in or not? It's three bucks and one cent each. So I said, okay, we'll come in and see Sons of Bob. <laughs> I walked in, I saw another DJ from... P.O.R. I knew, and I said, is it true? And he said, 12 songs set. Yep. <laughs> now, I understand that they actually, as you said, you don't have, we don't have cell phones in 1989, but that they actually taped over the or blocked the telephones in the club so nobody could call their friends and say, get down here. Right, and uh, I certainly wanted to make some calls. I have friends, and uh, certainly could alert the New Haven Register where I was then working uh you know, get a photographer, etc. And I went down, and the whole bank of pay phones was all taped over, disabled. You couldn't use them. And not only that, but if you left the club, you would not be allowed back in. So we were happily held hostage for uh, that evening. <laughs> Could not get out. So for $3.01 for a ticket, you saw the Rolling Stones. How yeah. in the world do you have security for that kind of group in a little club like Toad's Place? Well, they didn't really have it, but uh, the Stones had their own uh, security people, and they came in and started talking to uh, the, the Toads bouncers, who were just now beginning to find out what was going on. And one of the uh, security guys for the Stones said, how many people you got here? And the, the, the Toads guy said, well, we got a few guys, just you know, a few guys. And, and the Stones guy said, that won't do at all, mate. And so <laughs> we're bringing in all our people. The Stones saw to it that there would be enough... Uh, back up in security. We'll be back in a minute with our guest. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. 
If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. In that same year, unbelievably enough, 1989, Bob Dylan played Toad's Place in what has been described as his longest show, uh, showtime, really, or longest show. Uh, I guess that lasted practically all night. It Tell did. me about that Dylan show. Well, again, um, through my connections, I, uh, I that was not a surprise show. So when the tickets went on sale, I was able to get tickets because I'd been at the register and had those connections. So we thought... And everyone else thought, even people in the business thought, well, he's, he's just going to play for a few hours, a couple hours at the most, because he, he too wants to get um, the audience response and get ready for his, his big national tour. And so he started playing. Of course, we're very happy to hear Bob Dylan, and he does a set. And uh, after about 45 minutes an hour, he, he leaves, and you don't know what's coming next. And it turns out that he was downstairs and Brian Phelps came down and said, well, what do you want to do now? I said, oh, can we play some more? And, uh, well, you're Bob Dylan. Yeah, you can play some more. And this went on and on and on. He'd play a set for 45 minutes or so. He'd leave, and he'd come back up after a few minutes. Back, forth, back and forth. And next thing we know, it's like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, they could they had to stop serving drinks because it's so late. Uh, but there were some police officers enjoying the show, and they made sure that it was okay just uh, make sure people weren't openly drinking. And it was just a, a great, great night. He played, I think, 50 songs. He was in a great mood. He was taking requests. It was just a real intimate evening is what made Tom's Toad so special, to have that intimacy with a performer. I think it's so interesting that musicians who, at that point, are playing huge stadiums, certainly places like the New Haven Coliseum, still want to have that almost face-to-face contact with their audience to really validate their impression of how they're doing their songs and how their album's coming across. That just fascinates me. I guess I read in the book that for the Dylan show, uh, the tickets sold out in 18 minutes at the door at Toad's. Now, Toad's only holds 750 people. There's 750 seats that are allowed probably by the fire marshal. Um, So it's not a huge space to say the least. How did they actually book their uh, musical acts? And how do they make money besides the live music tickets? It seems like a tough business. Well, well it is a tough business, but once you get a reputation as a, a good club with good acoustics and lighting and a staff that knows what they're doing and they'll take care of you. And Mike Sperndle was always especially good at uh, taking care of the bands, making sure they're com- comfortable, bringing in legendary Sally's Pizza from Worcester Square, New Haven. So they, they knew that they would that there'd be a good sound and there'd be an audience that would really listen to them and not just say, oh, play cover tunes and we want to dance and pick somebody up. We're here because we're, we're interested in your music and um, you're, you're going to get a good response from that audience. Now, do you think part of the their success is that there are not one but three different colleges in New Haven? There's always a fresh crop of college kids. Certainly, they're they're virtually on the Yale campus. Yale's all over the area, so Yale students are always walking by and looking at 
who's advertised in the window, and there are special uh, dr uh, drinking and dancing nights just for uh, Yale students. So Mike uh, and Brian, through the years, knew how to cultivate that. But also, students from Southern Connecticut State University and Quinnipiac University like to come in and, uh, hey, let's meet some Yale guys and Yale women, and uh, let's uh, be part of the big New Haven scene and hear some good music. But what was really uh, keeping Toads going through the years in a tough business was these, these dance nights where you didn't even have a live band. You would just know that students would want to come in, dance, drink, meet other students. Now, speaking of students, tell us a story about uh, a first uh, daughter, so to speak, a president's daughter and her fake ID at the door at Toads. Yes. Um, Barbara, I think. Was a part, okay, Barbara. Um, was a student at Yale, and um, but she wasn't. But the drinking age was 21, so she wasn't quite old enough to uh, legally drink there. But she had her ways of getting credentials, so she got a, a fake ID, and she came in, and uh, the the guy at the door realized this was not genuine, and uh, he just didn't want her to uh, to, to come in, and. Uh, I mean, I think she got to see the show, but um, it turned into a national thing where the, the fake ID became known, and um, the, the the bartender, who was a retired cop, wanted to brag about it, so uh, he kept t t giving interviews, and Brian finally told him to, to, to shut up about it and to take care of... Brian had to do damage control, which he's very good at, to uh, make Toads not look bad and make the first family not look bad. The book really explains how people like Jim Koplick and some of the radio stations were good connections for Toads to be able to book groups that were on tour or were being pushed by record labels, new artists. I was interested to see even somebody like Cindy Lauper, who was such a big success. Her first time at Toads, she had less than 100 people that came to her show. Um, and then they, the book also talks about how you had the local uh, bookers who were looking for local bands all over the state. How has that changed though? Because it used to be that record labels would literally like put a band in a van and send them across the country and try to drum up interest in those bands, especially if they were re you know, releasing albums. It, it seems like with social media and the internet now, it's changed. Yes, it used to be there was great synergy between the local radio stations such as POR in New Haven, you had the alternative press, News Weekly's the New Haven Advocate, which no longer exists. They also worked with, uh, with me at the New Haven Register, which no longer covers rock music. All that was in place in the 70s and 80s, and it fed off each other. So PLR would bring in the musicians and interview them the day of the show. They'd be advertised, and, and it would just build. Uh, for instance, U2 played at um, Toads a couple of times with very small audiences, but then their their uh, stature grew and grew thanks to Rolling Stone and um, other musicians, uh, rock journalists, and, 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 and the radio play. So it was just more of a, it wasn't all niche stuff. It was uh, more of a unified culture in those days, and it was easier to build a band and its reputation. I know that one of the more expensive musical acts that played at Toads happened to be Johnny Cash, and he had a $20,000 uh, payment for one, a one-night performance. That seems like a lot of money, but what, obviously, if you got that many, if you sold 750 tickets 
and people went to the bar, would you cover a big nut like that? That was the key, that you knew that people would be there being, having a good time, you'd sell a lot, a lot of drinks, and uh, maybe in a night or two you don't quite break even, but it helps Toad's reputation, and uh, if you're gonna get him back there, um, and it, it'll just help grow the mystique and reputation of Toad's. What do you think is in the future for Toads? We're all coming out of the pandemic and we've all had this experience where we stayed home for months at a time. And sometimes I feel like I've um, forgotten how to go out places, even restaurants at the beginning when we were able to go out again. How do you think things are gonna change for Toads? Well, I think Toads is gonna to continue to be a place supported by college students and people of that age. I don't think you're gonna get you know, people of Brian's age, my age, going down there, he, he tells me that sometimes people, his generation, baby boomers say, well, why don't you get Jonathan Edwards back there? And uh, why don't you get Stephen Stills back in to do a solo show? And, uh, and he says, because I know you and your friends are not gonna show up on mass because you don't want to uh, park three blocks away and I have to walk three blocks, and then after the show, where do, where do I get back to my car? And you're gonna to wanna to show the show to end at 10 o'clock so you can get home and be in bed by 11 o'clock. It's just not gonna work. I'm not gonna be able to sell those tickets. So he has to learn how to cater to the continuing tastes of people in their 20s and 30s. So that's just the way it's gonna be. It's gonna be that crowd and college students and, uh, and people of that age who are gonna have to sustain it, and uh, let's face it, they're not, as, they're not worried about walking three blocks to a car or, or walking back to the campus. They're not worried about staying up late, so as long as they can be there to good music and, and meet people of their old age, dance with them, have fun with them, uh, even if there's been a pandemic, they're not just not as reluctant to go out as uh, older generations are. They certainly have had to change with the times as different types of music came in. I was surprised that both Drake and Cardi B had played there. They certainly embraced hip-hop early on with Queen Latifah and Houdini. They had early rap acts, DMX for example. So they certainly have stayed up with the musical trends. Is there one more story or something that you found surprising that you want to tell us? Well in terms of terms, what impresses me is that Brian learned to adapt to to figure out who's hot or who's gonna be hot soon, and uh, I'll, I'll book that band, and maybe the first time they don't sell that many tickets, but they'll come back. He just always had this, his finger on the pulse of this, and, and he used his staff, the younger staff, to, to help him along on that. So that's what's always impressed me about Brian, and uh, the 50th anniversary coming up in a couple of years, I know he wants to hang on that long, but let's face it, he can't do it forever, and. Uh, at some point, you'll have to find someone who he trusts, really knows the business and has that passion and can want to stay up that late at night that he still does. He's a worker. It's a 24-hour-a-day type of job. Sure is. Here's what two artists had to say about Toad's Place. What I loved about Toad's Place is that they let you do more than just show up and set your band up and play. You could actually curate some kind of show that was interesting to people and different. That's Cindy Lauper. And this for Michael Bolton. I love Toad's Place. It gave aspiring artists and musicians in Connecticut a chance to discover who they were musically 
and the freedom to strengthen what they would need in order to have any chance of having a career in music. Looking back, I can clearly see that Brian applied the same kind of commitment, veracity, and focus that he did when I used to see him in the dojo at karate school. Long live Toads! I want to thank my guest today and recommend his new book, The Legendary Toad's Place, story from New Haven's famed musical venue. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by the award-winning author and historian Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan of High Wattage Media. We hope you tune in in two weeks for our next episode. This is Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg.